time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm coming back to work to get rest from the weekend. <laughs> yeah, it means I had a good weekend. Although, it didn't exactly turn out the way I had planned. The plans included kayaking and golf. And, uh, and were slightly interrupted by the fact that uh, I injured my back lifting my kayak. <sighs> you know, I know better than that, too. You know, you're supposed to lift with your legs. You're supposed to keep your back straight. You're supposed to lift with your legs. But no, Tubby didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, Tubby, the little rascal character. Yeah, that's... <laughs> no, I, I, I bent over and grabbed my kayak and promptly began to lift it. And this thing happened in the back of in my lower back. It went, bing! And I went, oh! <laughs> oh, man. And so what's funny is is that I've, I've had lower back injuries in the past. And they're just no fun because you can't move. You know, even lying in bed, you know, just the simple act of switching from one side to another is an ordeal. And... Uh, and so I decided I would do something I've never done before, you know, because guys never ask for directions anywhere, and we don't like getting medical advice either. And so I decided that I would quietly just get on the Internet and type in lower back injury into Google. And uh, they came back with these wonderful results that said, get this, get active. It said, don't lie on your back and do nothing. It'll make it worse. And so I thought, no way. Because in the past, you know, I've injured my back. At that point, I've become one of the world's largest and most obnoxious infants. You know, oh, I'm in so much pain. So I I, I went the other route. I, I got active. I spent time in the kitchen yesterday, um, worked on the honeydew list, went on a walk, and was pretty much on my feet with uh, most of the day with the exception of uh, with the exception of church. And my back feels a lot better. I'm not quite up to speed, but um, I, I, it's miraculous. So if you uh, if you ever hurt your lower back, the solution is housework, guys. Um, don't let any of the women hear me say that, though. If you're a woman and you heard me say that, I'll deny it. <laughs> okay, well, do I start today with the email or do I start with the news? You know, I'm going to start with the news today. We're we're going to go right into the news because this is a uh, a lovely, great news story from the Telegraph in the UK. Headline reads: Charles Darwin to receive apology from the Church of England for rejecting evolution. Yeah. By the way, Charles Darwin's been dead for a while. You know, his turtle died a few years ago. I remember that he had a, he had a really large turtle. And his turtle died, you know, just a few years ago. It, it, it obviously survived him by a century <laughs> or more. Um, Church of England is to apologize to Charles Darwin for its initial rejection of his theories nearly 150 years after he published his most famous work. It's a story from the Telegraph in Great Britain. The Church of England will concede in a statement that it was over-defensive and over-emotional in, dismiss- in dismissing Darwin's ideas. It will call anti-evolutionary fervor an indictment on the Church. The bold move is certain to dismay sections of the Church that believe in creationism <laughs> and regards Darwin's views as directly opposed to traditional Christian teaching. Well, the reason is because they are! Shazam! In a... <laughs> Open up to the beginning of the book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created, right? Not chance. You are not you are not a product of evolution. But yet the church, <clears throat> church of England, is going to issue a, a formal apology to Charles Darwin for rejecting the theory of evolution. I wonder if they're going to hand deliver this to him in hell. Sorry, that was a little... <laughs> judgmental on my part I'm sorry but uh, how do we know that God created the heavens and the earth how do we know that instead of evolution 
it's plain and simple. You can say the scriptures actually clearly teach that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, animals and little puppy dogs and and bears and, and clouds and fishies. He created them in six days. It says so in the scripture. Well, you go, well, okay, so what? The book says it. What does that mean? Well, going back to it, Jesus Christ himself affirms the truthfulness of the book of Genesis, the law of Moses, the prophets, and everything that occurred therein. And therefore, we shouldn't hold a view of Scripture any less than what Jesus had. Jesus was God in human flesh. What kind of... This is ridiculous. The church has no business apologizing to Darwin. Instead, they should be taking Darwin on. Um, If you would like a really good read, okay, a good primer, a good primer on the subject of evolutionary theory and its problems and why the evidence itself doesn't support evolutionary theory, that's the thing, is that evolution has never moved beyond the theory stage because there isn't any evidence to support it. I strongly recommend that you go out and get a book. And if you don't want to read the book, then go to a site like audible.com. That's audible.com, A-U-D-I-B-L-E. And purchase the audio version of the book in unabridged form. The name of the book is A Case for the, uh, a Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. Okay, Strobel does a fantastic job of interviewing and reporting the findings of his interviews with people who are scientists who do not believe in evolutionary theory and on the on the contrary say that the evidence in in the fossil records doesn't point to evolution but instead points to a creator so um strongly recommend that you get the book and that you read it i mean it's just absolutely fantastic it gives you a good lay over the you know flight over the battlefield there is no reason on earth that the church should be apologizing to Darwinian evolutionists or Darwin himself regarding not accepting his theory. Their, their basic gist of you know, their thinking here is, is that somehow uh, Darwin was like Galileo. You know, Galileo said that the earth was round and that the earth circled the sun. And, you know, of course, back in those days, you know, they, the church, the Catholic church believed and taught and let's say rigidly enforced through the use of capital punishment, the concept that the earth, the sun revolved around the earth. It was an earth centric view of the universe, if you would. Well, um, Galileo in his scientific observations knew otherwise and uh, I think it was posthumously basically reported his findings. It's hard to kill somebody who's already dead. Anyway, so <clears throat> is Charles Darwin the next Galileo? Should we not have had such an emotional knee-jerk reaction to Darwin's theories of evolution? Well, <clears throat> that's assuming a lot. It's assuming that the church's reaction and rejection of evolutionary theory was based merely upon emotion. It's not. It's based upon good science. It's also based upon what the scripture reveals and who Jesus is and all that type of stuff. We shouldn't be apologizing to Darwin or anybody of the sort. We need to be taking these guys to task and pummeling their really bad science and standing up for the truth. We're not a product of chance. We're not a product of mere random things that occur. In fact, I mean, at its base, the law, the theory of evolution flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. You don't get, you don't get design from nothing. You know, you don't randomly, you know, create these complex designs. It just doesn't randomly happen. No, you have to put thought and design into it. In fact, the DNA, the genetic code, is a wonderful computer program, if you would. And if there's a pro, if there's a program, then there's a programmer. It makes logical sense. Plus, Jesus Christ Himself affirms that the Earth was created in six days. Why? Because He's the one who created it. <sighs> Man. But no, oh, we had an emotional reaction, and we're so sorry, Mr. Darwin. <laughs> we're sorry. <laughs> Give me a break. Throwing that one away. <laughs> uh.
let's take a look here. More email. Uh, we got a couple more suggestions for the uh, Name the Kayak contest. Winner of the Name the Kayak contest actually gets a uh, will be getting a Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt and Pirate Christian Radio baseball cap. Once those are available, we should be getting those shortly. And uh, and so we have a couple more entries into the uh, into the um, mix here. Um, Margot writes, um, "Has anyone suggested naming your kayak Porpoise Driven?" <laughs> but Porpoise Driven. <clears throat> Why would you say such a thing? I mean, uh, <laughs> Porpoise Driven. That's it's clever. It's cute. And then here we go. <clears throat> kayak name. Um, Keith writes, how about Sola Fide? See? That's, grace alone. Or faith alone. That's, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we got two more entries. If you would like to participate in the Name the Kayak contest, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you would like, you can uh, contact me on Facebook or on the Wittenberg Trail. Those of you who are interested in Lutheranism and would like to discuss Lutheran distinctives and, and find out what it means to be a confessional Lutheran, there is a wonderful online resource, and the name of the resource is the Wittenberg Trail. And I think the uh, the address is wittenbergtrail.ning.com. I'll put a link up to it on the website today. Wittenberg Trail. And uh, just a good place if you're interested in learning a little bit more about uh the Lutheran Church and Luth- the confessions of the Lutheran Church from people who are confessionals and not nearly as um, abrasive as I am, then uh, you can do so at Wittenberg Trail. That's wittenbergtrail.ning.com. Like I said, I'll put a link up to it on the website today. Good for you to to do that. Um, all right, let's see here. Do that tomorrow. By the way, today we're going to be talking about Rick Warren's new... 40 Days Campaign. It's the 40 Days of Love. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything can be brought down to 40 days. But before we get to that, I got a great email from uh, from Dusty. He wrote me on uh, on Facebook. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, you want me to let everyone know that the Angels actually won the game on Friday night. Yeah, th- those of you following the foibles and follies of the thing I call my life, um, we, <laughs> we at, uh, as a company, went to the Angel game on uh, Friday night, had a great time. Um, there were some ruckus people near where we were. Um, I think they had a little too much to drink. But the good news was is that the Angels won the game, and, you know, and it's – there's this wonderful line in the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about taking somebody, stomping on them until they break into pieces, and then stomping on them some more. And you know. <laughs> So the Angels, who've already clinched a playoff spot, uh, just pummeled Seattle. Actually, they didn't pummel them, but they beat them. It was a walk-off home run in the ninth inning. That was loads of fun. So <clears throat> had to share that with you all. All right, I got an email here from Dusty. Dusty wrote me on Facebook. And Dusty has a um, he he had a question for me. He's uh, he thanks me for the show and talk, talks about ap- apologetics, and um, and has a um, somebody that he's conversing with that um, considers some things challenging about Christianity, and he wanted to know my two cents on it. So um, so this is uh, he's quoting a friend of his who posted this up. And I'll read from the friend's quote, and I think this is an an important thing because it's talking about we as Christians, how do we evangelize, and what is the message that we bring? Should we engage in relational evangelism? Should we be out there getting in people's faces and telling them to repent? You know, bullhorn guy. If you think about Rob Bell in the in the Numa series, um, and this kid brings up some good stuff. What's interesting though is that in it, um, there's some some bad categories. And so we got to we got to we got to straighten some of these out so that we can answer the question because you know one of the things that's absolutely true is is that you know Christianity can be offensive to some people and the message of Christianity can be offensive. But the question is uh, that I have is are people being offended by the message of Christ and him crucified or are they being offended because uh you're basically trying to shove the law down their throat and tell them that, th- that in order for them to be saved they have to uh, be good. 
you know, it's, that's, that's two completely different things. So uh, quoting from the email that uh, Dusty sent me, and he's quoting a friend of his, uh, somebody he's having a discussion with, he says, I found the majority of the people we are supposed to reach out to don't like being preached at. Do you like being preached at, John? No, I don't like being preached at either. All right, okay. So, okay, pre- preaching at somebody, there's a context to that. So to them, preaching means being told what to do and what not to do and how to pray and who to pray to and what they should read and what they can and cannot do with their lives. Notice that uh, this person is defining being preached at as pretty much having the law shoved down your throat without anything, you know, like a big horse pill and no water. You know, try swallowing this here. Modern-day evangelism seems to be nothing more than going up to people and telling them they need to be saved. You know, child, you, you be needing the Lord and praise Jesus and stuff like that. Well, I don't know where this guy's been, but uh, this, this particular form of evangelism has definitely fallen out of vogue. I mean, the way you do evangelism nowadays is you stop feeding the people, you know, the sheep at your church and, and, and basically set up a show to bring goats in and entertain them to death. That's called evangelism now. <clears throat> Sorry, just had to put that in there. I know for a fact that if someone was trying to convert me to Scientology, I would not take kindly to being confronted about my entire life path and then literally harassed into joining this cult. That's what Christianity is to a lot of people, a cult. A leader and a lot of followers, that's all it is. They don't know what it involves. Quite frankly, with the way of a lot of so-called Christians behave, I wouldn't... I wouldn't want nothing to do with this faith granted i knew nothing of what it really is jesus didn't go to people and say hey uh you might want to follow me instead he loved them and he reached out to them and helped them and then he told them where his love came from and what it is all about now i gotta challenge that this is a common ploy or common claim by a lot of people that jesus was out there loving people and you know, he wasn't confronting. He was, he was, he was a loving, but he wasn't confronting. Is this concept? And I'm going to challenge that today. But let me read more of the uh, email, and then I'll, I'll circle back to it. I'm going to come back and take a take a biblical look at what Jesus was up to. All right. So true, real heart and soul evangelism involves praying for people. Yes, showing them real love. It does involve that. Being Christ to them. Yes, we can do that. These days, that doesn't happen too often. People are concerned with their Christ quota. Christ quota? John, what's your Christ Christ quota this week? You don't know? Yeah, I... Gosh, I didn't get the email on that. My Christ quota this week. I, all right, my Christ quota for the week is uh, 10. But I don't know what that means. Or maybe it's like the, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What's the uh, meaning of life? 42. See, 42 could be your your Christ quota. So, anyway, we continue. All right, all right. So they basically feel like they've got this Christ quota, thinking they have to convert a certain number of people and in as little time as possible. So if you get your Christ quota done early, you know you can actually kick up your heels and never do evangelism again. Did you know that? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, got to get it done quick. Okay. That's one of the reasons why people literally hate this Christian faith that we call our own. It's because of people who adhere to it blindly, with no regard for what it really is, merely obeying what they've, they're told to do by people who claim to know what God really wants from us. Boy. La, 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 la. Well, I don't hear any gospel here. Let's see if he understands the gospel, though. He says, God wants relationship. That's what true Christianity is. It's relationship with Jesus. It's not religion. It has become a religion over the years. Jesus essentially disowned the Pharisees and high priests who followed the rules to to a T because they were doing these things out of obedience, not love. Now there's the rub. Let Let me read the sentence to you and see if you can see the category mistake. God wants relationship. That's what true Christianity is. It's relationship with Jesus. How many? I mean, if I had a, a dollar for every time I heard that, I would be a very, very wealthy man. Or at least I would have spent a lot of money. It's relationship with Jesus. It's not religion. It 
has become a religion over the years, Jesus essentially disowned the Pharisees and high priests who followed the rules to a T because they were doing these things out of obedience, not love. By the way, question, Ten Commandments. Jesus is asked regarding the most important commandments, right? Think about Mark, I think it's chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what are the most important commandments? Commandments. What's a commandment? The com- a commandment is a law of God, right? The law. God commands you. So you can say one of the commandments is, thou shalt not murder, right? That's one of the commandments. Okay, Another commandment, thou shalt not steal. That's a commandment, right? Both of those statements, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not steal, are part of the law. The law. Does the law save you? No, absolutely not. Well, it could, actually, if you kept it perfectly. If you want to be saved by the law then you need to keep it perfectly. Now, let's come back to my original question, the question that was proposed to Jesus. What are the most important or the primary, what is the primary commandment of the law? Jesus, in answering the question regarding the law of Moses as to what the most important commandment was, responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law, right? What is the purpose of the law? To show you your sin, show you your need for a Savior, cause you to despair of your own, uh, your own lack of righteousness, and to cause you to put your trust in Christ. It's a tool of the gospel. The law does not save you. So here, uh, Dusty's friend mixes law and gospel, doesn't realize it. We got this wrong idea that somehow the gospel is that we need to love God and love others. That is not the gospel. That's the law. Whenever you hear a church saying, we love God and we love others, you're, you're, the next thing out of your mouth it should be, no, you don't. If you claim that you love God and you love others in and of yourself or perfectly, the answer to that is, no, you don't. You be a lion. You are lying like a rug. And if you think you're saved by how well you love God and love others, you don't know what you're talking about. In fact... The uh, reformers, in the Confessions of the Lutheran Faith, we have this wonderful document called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Fifth article of the Augsburg Confession has to do with justification, that we are justified by Christ alone, literally by the work that he has done. And um, the Roman Catholics, back in the time of the Reformation, wrote a document called the Confutation. And the Confutation tries to take on this concept that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, um, and basically says that, no, it has to be faith that produces love. That was the Roman Catholic answer. And so in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, it takes this to task. Again, showing rather clearly that the command to love is law. So it's not good news if I come to you and say, God says, love me and love your neighbor. That's not good news at all. Because I'm going to tell you right now, right now, you come to me and you say, God says, love me and love your neighbor. I'm going to go, oh, I'm in trouble. Because I don't. I don't love God perfectly. Not even close. Love my neighbor Wow, I can point to so many times in my life where I haven't done that either. And telling me that I just need to learn how to do it better, that that's the thing that I've got to do, well, that's not any good news either. Because 
As I've pointed out before, and I'll say it again, the law is a completely dry and scorching wind. It doesn't let you off the hook at all. And just when you think you're pulling it off perfectly, you've got more problems. But let me let me go back to this concept that uh, you know Jesus reached out and wasn't confrontational. Here's a biblical quiz question for you. Who was the person who prepared the way for Jesus Christ? Who was the person in the Bible that prepared the way for Jesus Christ? Was it the flower children? No, it was John the Baptist, right? Guy wore camel's hair, lived on locusts and honey. I'm sure that if you went to him and wanted to have a conversation with you and he didn't like what you had to say, he might spit a grasshopper leg in your face. This guy, what was his message? Repent. Repent. And if you think that's uh, unique to him, it actually isn't. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's an important little verse. Okay, It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, but we're going to read it in context because one of the things I want to encourage you all to do is always read Scripture in context. I'm going to point out a verse, but I want to read it to you in context so you see what's going on. Okay? So uh, Jesus in Matthew 4 had just gotten finished uh, experiencing being tempted by the devil directly. And so we pick up uh, at verse 11. It says, Then the devil left Jesus, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested... That's John the Baptist. Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, to them a light has dawned. So Jesus is the light of the world, right? And so here's the verse, though. It says, and from that time, see, John the Baptist had just been uh, arrested. It said, from that time, and the idea in in the Greek here is from that time forward, Jesus began to preach, saying, get this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus picks up where John the Baptist left off and It says, from that time forward, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This verse tells us that Jesus' standard message from the time of John the Baptist's arrest was a message of repentance. Therefore, unless one is willing to argue that Jesus was calling for people, unless one is willing to argue that Jesus was calling for people to repent of something other than their sins, um, then that's ridiculous that would actually contradict the scripture this also means that tax collectors prostitutes uh those ones those people who hung out with jesus or that jesus hung out with first heard jesus's message of repentance furthermore unless one is willing to say that jesus was unloving and uncaring when he told people to repent of their sins then it's ridiculous to believe that that's the case so this idea that we have, this kind of false Jesus we've set up of the loving Boy Scout who helps the little old ladies across the Sea of Galilee, the Jesus who just hangs with sinners but never confronts sinners with their sins, that, that Jesus didn't exist. Jesus' standard stump speech from the time of John the Baptist's arrest forward was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that repentance is a repentance of sins. Hmm. Mark, there's a cross-reference, by the way, to Matthew 4, uh, 17 that confirms the message that Jesus preached to everyone called for repentance and belief. The verse is actually Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And uh, I'm not going to read it in context, but go and read this in context. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and, uh, God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of us is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Not only did Jesus' message call for people to repent of their sins, Jesus actually reproached and called down judgment on those who would not repent. This is an important fact. Okay, Um, let me let me give you an example here. 
Matthew 11, verse 20, and this is one we're going to have to read in context. Matthew 11, verse 20. I'm going to point this out to you. This idea that... uh, All right. All right. Reading it in context. Going to verse 16. It says this. But to what shall I compare this generation? This is Jesus speaking. It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And then Jesus began to to denounce the city where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Was Jesus just singling out the Pharisees of Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? No, he wasn't. He was calling out woe and judgment because they wouldn't repent. So this idea, this false idea that Jesus just hung out with people and never confronted them with their sins is not only not true. The Bible tells us that his standard stump speech included a message of repentance and belief in the gospel. But to those towns, those people that wouldn't repent, Jesus calls down judgment. So Jesus is not this meek and mild Marvin the Martian kind of guy. Instead, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And uh, he has a lot to say. He calls us to repentance. He confronts us with our sin. He confronts us with his glory. And he confronts us with his love. Important things for us to consider. So if you're going to have this idea that, uh, that people don't like to be preached at, well, Jesus preached at them. He told them to repent and believe the gospel. And when they didn't, he called down judgment on them. So we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to proclaim we need to confront people with their sins and call them to repentance and belief. They're not going to like it, but God's going to convert some to Christianity through that. We need to not be ashamed to do so. And yeah, people aren't some people aren't going to like it, but this is not something where we take a poll, stick our finger in the wind and go, "Oh no, our popularity polls are slipping." Like, you know, the president, you know, and decide things based upon whether or not people like us or not. So just a little thing I'd like to point out there. Anyway, we're going to go into a break real quick. We'll be right back. And when we get back, we're going to talk about Rick Warren's 40 Days of Love. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus Schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. 
And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. So my wife, she reads the uh, Orange County Register. You know, I, I'm one of these technological geeks. I always read my news on the Internet. My wife prefers to actually have the newsprint in hand, and she's become quite the researcher. So uh, over the weekend, she goes, Chris, you got to see this. you got to see this. Full page Four-color advertisement in the Orange County Register on Saturday and uh, Friday and Saturday, announcing uh, the giving an invitation to join us at Saddleback Church this weekend. Last month, you may have seen me asking questions of each presidential candidate at the Saddleback Civil Forum. Boy, he's milking that one for all he's got, isn't it? That's a, this is a picture of Rick Warren, and apparently this is him speaking. <clears throat> now I have a question for you. If there was one thing you want out of life, what would it be? Happiness, success, wealth, comfort, fame, to have fun? In my four decades as a pastor, I've learned that more than anything, people simply want to love and to be loved. And those are exactly the same two things that God wants for you. He cares about you, and he cares about your relationships. Join me this weekend as I begin a seven-week series that we're calling 40 Days of Love. With conflict, divorce, brokenness, and abuse around us every day, we can all benefit from some lessons in building and restoring relationships. In the 40 days, you'll learn the habits of a loving heart, which will reduce stress, increase forgiveness in your life, leading to more fulfilling relationships. I'll see you this weekend at Saddleback. Rick. Pastor Rick Warren. (sighs) So there's a four-color, full-page advertising in the Orange County Register, advertising the 40 Days of Love, promising you that you'll learn the habits of a loving heart, which will reduce stress, increase forgiveness in your life, and leading to more fulfilling relationships. I mean, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) In only 40 days, I'll have less stress and more fulfilling relationships? Sign me up. My question, though, is, is that Christianity? Is that what Christianity teaches? You know, you know what a whiffum is, right? You ever heard the word whiffum? What's in it for me? In sales and marketing speak, I actually came up through the, uh, the sales and marketing ranks in the corporate world. After my degree in religious studies and biblical languages, I actually owned a company for many years and then went to work for another one. Uh, and came up through the sales and marketing ranks. And uh, we learned the, the, the very important thing called WIFM. And that is is that whenever you're making a sales and marketing pitch, the person reading your pitch or hearing your pitch is going to be asking the question, what's in it for me? So why would you want to go to Saddleback Church? Well, get this. I mean, if you go to, you want to know what's in it for you? This is the WIFM part. You see, that's what that is. The, uh, you can benefit from building and restoring relationships, having less stress, learning the habits of a loving heart, and having more fulfilling relationships. My question is, do, can you get your tithe back if this doesn't, you know, do they have a guarantee? I would like uh, a money-back guarantee. So any money I put in the plate, if I don't have less stress and more fulfilling relationships, I want my money back. Yeah. Anyway, so... um. Well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to follow the 40 Days of Love. At least today, we're going to take a look at it. He actually kicked it off last week. And uh, we're going to listen to part of the sermon that Rick Warren preached on the 40 Days of Love. Let me get my notes here. Now, remember what I said earlier in the program. When we hear the commandment, love God and love your neighbor... Is that the gospel? Answer, no, that's the law. Can the law save you? No, not unless you keep it perfectly. So we're going to pick up, uh, we're going to actually pick up uh, the first in the series. Um, 
called Building Great Relationships. This is all part of the 40 Days of Love, and we're going to pick this up from the beginning, and we'll chime in as, as we need to. Here we go. Pastor Rick Warren. Well, welcome to 40 Days of Love kickoff. I want to begin by asking you a question. I'd like to ask you, how would you complete this sentence? My number one goal in life is... Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. My number one goal in life, what is most important to me, is... How would you complete that sentence? What word, what phrase would you use? Would you say, my number one goal in life is to be happy? Or, my number one goal in life is to be loved? Or, my number one goal in life is to succeed at, at, at my career? How would you answer that question? My number one goal in life is comfort, or have fun, or retire, or get married and raise a family. My number one goal in life is to be well-known, popular. How would you answer that question? It's very, very important. All right, so here he opens up his sermon with a question. You know, number one goal in life. Man, I, I don't even know if my life is that organized. <laughs> yeah, if you knew my personality type... Um, uh, my personality type is prone to procrastination and not really wanting to be buttoned down to any one particular thing. So I bristle against the thought of having just one particular goal. <sighs> All right, let's play along and find out where we're going. And if you haven't ever thought it through, you need to think it through. Oh, I need to think it through. If you haven't thought it through, Rick is saying you need to think it through. Yikes. And consciously understand it because however you answer that question is what I call your dominant life principle. All right, I, I know. My number one goal in life is to destroy the purpose-driven movement. Now, everybody's got a dominant life principle. It's the most important value to you in life. You maybe never thought it through, but you use it all the time. Every time you make a decision, every time you have a choice, you access the database in your brain, and you decide what you're going to do based on your dominant life principle value, your dominant principle of life. For instance, if my dominant life value or principle is uh, to have fun, then uh, this evening, if I get a couple of invitations on the phone, I'm going to tend to choose the thing that's the most fun to do, because that's what's important to me, have fun. If my dominant life principle is uh, comfort, then I'm going to tend to choose the easiest thing to do. My my question right off the bat is, um, is there a right or wrong answer here? Yeah. What if I have the wrong dominant life answer? Oh, no. What's the most convenient thing? No, I'd rather just stay home and lay on the couch and watch TV. That sounds like great fun. If my dominant life value or principle is um, safety... It's, it, it, then I'm going to tend to make every decision in life based on what's the safest choice. And so I'm going to look at it that way, security issues. You know, is this a group therapy session? Is this group therapy? I'm serious. Is he licensed to do this? <sighs> if my dominant life value is to be approved, to be affirmed, to, to be uh, applauded, then I'm going to tend to choose things in life where I get the most affirmation. If Earning approval is the most important thing to me. So it's extremely important that you think through what is going to be the most important value in your life. Why is this important, Rick? I mean, he's making the case. I mean, if you showed up there at Saddleback Church or if you happen to be listening here today and and uh, your dominant life value is safety, affirmation, comfort. I like the comfort one, though, about sitting on the couch. That sounds really cool. Although I, I've given that up for kayaking. So my number one dominant life value is kayaking. I will make decisions that, that help me get to my boat. <sighs> Why is this important, Rick? Listen to his answer. It's rather interesting. Now, what does God have to say about this? 
Yeah, well, he has it? a lot to say about it. And in the Bible, in the book of 1 Corinthians, there on your outline, chapter 14, verse 1, he says this. Okay. Listen carefully, folks. If you need to rewind the tape, please do. If you need to back up the, uh, the little thing on the MP3 player, please do, because we're going to play the Rick Warren Bible quote game. Is he ripping it out of context, or is he telling you what it really says? Remember last week when we uh, we did the Chuck Curry evaluation when he was quoting the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas? And I made the point that the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas basically takes all of Jesus' supposed sayings and removes them from any historical context whatsoever. There's no backstory to any of it. They're like fortune cookie sayings. Ah, Jesus says, uh, if you bend over, make sure your pants are not too tight. You know, ridiculous stuff like that, okay? Uh, watch what Rick Warren is doing here with the Bible. Okay, we're going to ask the question, is he quoting it in context? Is that what the passage really says? And also notice that he's strip mining the uh, the Bible here for principles. You know, the fortune cookie kind of things. How is this any different than what the Gnostics do with the Bible? How is this any different than what the Gnostics do? The most important part is getting that that information that you can apply so that you can have... <sighs> well, in this particular case, what do you get? You get uh, less stress, better relationships, more forgiveness, you know, stuff like that. All right, so let's let's continue. So he's he's going to be quoting First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse one. Okay, pull your Bible out, folks. I'm going to be reading it to you from the English Standard Version, and I want you to listen to what he says. This verse says, and we're going to ask the question: Is that what this passage? says in context here we go ready let love be your greatest aim you might want to circle that let love be your greatest aim okay rick warren just said that first corinthians chapter 14 verse 1 says let love be your greatest aim let love be your greatest aim Aim. Let me back this up just a second or two and see if I can... Whoa, I knew that was going to happen. Let's see, here we go. One, he says this. Let love be your greatest aim. You might want to circle that. Let love be your greatest aim. Of course, we're talking about the 40 days of love. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. According to Rick Warren says, let love be your greatest aim. FYI, he's quoting from the living paraphrase, not the massage. <clears throat> yeah, the living paraphrase. And he's quoting it out of context from a paraphrase. By the way, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 has to do with spiritual gifts. Do you know that if he read this in context from a good translation of the Bible, it wouldn't make a darn bit of sense at all? Because let me let me read it to you um, from the English Standard Version. I can do this uh, from many different translations if I wanted to, but we let's let's take a look at the English Standard one. Here we go. First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse one, and I'm going to read all the way to the end of verse five because this is all the thought that's going on here. Ready? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's the whole verse. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, and no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Rick Warren, in classic Rick Warren fashion, has just ripped 1 Corinthians 14.1 completely out of context. see if I can back this up again safely and have you hear it 
you know, this is it's this is just ridiculous. This is not how you treat the Bible. Here we go. One, he says this. Let love be your greatest aim. You might want to circle that. Let love be your greatest aim. Okay, so he's taking it out of context. The context of First Corinthians 14 is speaking about the gifts of the Spirit, tongues, and specifically prophesying. And Rick Warren rips it out of context and says that let love be your greatest aim. And now he's going to he's going to explain to you what this out of context verse means from the living paraphrase, of course. Not status, not success, not possessions or power or privilege or prestige, not comfort, not money. He says you should make as the number one life value love. Now, why does he- Is that what this verse says, that you should make as your number one life value love? No, it, it doesn't. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Pursue love. Uh, the Greek word, by the way, there for pursue is dioko. Pursue love. It does not say make love the most important thing. It says it says hasten towards love, um, agitate towards love, cause to run or set in motion love, follow in haste, pursue it love it doesn't say to make it your number one principle this is ridiculous by the way rick warren has had six years of greek and hebrew that's what he uh, when asked about you know what whether his critics knew what they were talking about he said i've had six years of greek and me i've only had four or five actually three years of greek two years of hebrew so he's got me beat, but apparently he doesn't, this isn't helping him because this is not what this verse says. He say that. Make love the highest aim of your life. It doesn't say that. Why? Because God is love. But the verse doesn't say that. And he wants you to be like him. Law. Here we go. The Bible tells us that God created everything in the universe out of love. He made everything in order to love it. Because God is love. It doesn't say he has love, he is love. He created you as an object of his love. And God wants you to be like him. And- okay, yeah, God wants me to be like him. My problem is, is that I'm a sinner sold into sin. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of sin? Hmm. <sighs> So he created you to learn how to love. In fact, you were put on this planet to learn how to love. Okay, Rick Warren now is saying that the reason you were put on the planet is so that you can learn how to love. Pay really close attention to this, okay? Um, one of the things that is very critical in properly handling God's word is that you do not make a doctrine unless you have a clear teaching from God's word. You don't make a proclamation that God wants us all to eat toasted cheese sandwiches. That's my kudos to Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. God doesn't want us all to eat toasted cheese sandwiches unless you can actually pull out a passage of Scripture that says that clearly. Okay? So here he's saying that the reason why you know, that God wants us to love is because he, want, he wants us to be like him, and so we, he wants us to have a life of love. Listen how he, how he puts this in play and ask yourself, do we have a clear passage of Scripture to support what he's about to claim? Here we go. Why didn't God just create you and take you to heaven? Have you ever thought about that? Okay, there's a question. This is a theological question. Why didn't God just create you and then take you to heaven? Can you point me to a passage of Scripture that actually clearly answers this question? Notice that in the uh, in the Dark Ages, one of the big theological questions is, is that could God uh, make two mountains without a valley in between them? Could God, how many, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle? Really ridiculous, dumb theological questions. Um, the question now before us is, why didn't God, why did God create you and then not just take you to heaven? Is the answer to this question actually found anywhere in Scripture clearly? Or are we left to just speculate? Well, here's Rick's answer. Why does he let you spend 60, 70, 80, 90 years here on a broken world where there is a sin, suffering, sorrow, sadness? 
uh, every time he has a list, he starts it off with the same letters, or he comes up with these really bizarre acronyms, sin, suffering, sorrow, sadness. Okay, thanks, Rick. Problems, pressures, stress. Why doesn't God just create you and take you directly to heaven? Why does he put you here on earth? He allows you here on earth in order to learn to love. So the reason why you're going through the suffering that you're going through is because God wants you to learn how to love. God wants you to learn how to do this. Chapter and verse, please, Pastor Rick, that would be really nice. So the reason why God doesn't just create you and send you to heaven is because while you're here, you see, this is school. You're learning. And there, you've got to learn how to do these things because God wants you to learn them. Listen, I kid you not. Let's continue. Life is all about learning how to love. In fact, one day Jesus was walking down the street and a guy came up to him and he said, Lord, what is the most important command in the Bible? Stop. What are we talking about here? Commands. What are commands? That's God's law. What is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? Let me read you the purpose of the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Okay, I'll read it to you in context. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's verse 19. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human will be justified or saved in God's sight. Since instead, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Primary function of the law is to convict you and show you your sin, give you knowledge of your sin. So the question before Jesus is, what is the primary, you know, message of the law? What's the most important commandment of the law? And Rick is going to get it right, and we're going to agree with him because he's, he's absolutely right. But this is law. God, can you, can you tell me what really matters most? By the way, command doesn't necessarily equal much what matters most, but we'll, we'll cover that another time. Jesus, of all these things that are in the Bible, what should I really focus on? And Jesus said, I can do that. I can summarize the entire Bible for you in two sentences. No, actually, he can sum summarize the entire law for you in a couple of sentences. But let's see, hear what he says. And if you get these two things, you get it. You get what life is all about. Did you hear that? If you get these two things, you know what life is all about. It's called the Great Commandment. We've looked at it many times. It's there on your outline. Let's read it aloud together in Mark chapter 12. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commands more important than these. Now, that's pretty clear. Yep, there's no commandments more important than these. Rick, do you do it? Anybody here uh, keeping the great commandment perfectly, I'd like to hear from you. Email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Purpose of the law is to give you knowledge of your sin, show you your need for a Savior. Only somebody who is saved by Christ and trusts in Christ, can begin to really love God. But he's not preaching Christ, he's preaching law. Christ is nowhere to be seen except for as a lawgiver in this sermon at this point. He said nothing in the Bible, nothing at all, is more important than these two things. Learn to love God with all your heart, and, oh, by the way, learn to love everybody else. So Rick is preaching the law here as something that's completely doable, in fact, necessary for salvation, if you would. Because uh, let's continue. He said, if you get those two things, you got it. You get it. You understand what I put you on this planet to do. Life is all about learning to love. Everything else is excess. Everything else is secondary. Make love your highest aim. He said, I want you, first of all, to learn to love me, God. And then he says, I want you to learn to love everybody else. And once you've done that, now you're ready to come to heaven. Once you learn how to love God and love your neighbor, then you're ready to come to heaven. Direct quote from Rick Warren. Are we saved by how well we learn how to love? 
man, it sure does sound like it, the way he's preaching it. That's why you are alive. And if you go all through life, it doesn't matter how much you acquire and how much you achieve and how many accomplishments you make and how many rewards or how famous you become. None of that matters. One day you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, did you learn to love me? By the way, that's why I sent Jesus Christ, so you could learn to love me. And did you learn, by the way, to learn to love other people? Because that's what I put you on earth to do. And if you miss that, miss that uh, wrong answer. Wow. Did you, God's going to ask you, did you learn to love me? And did you learn to love other people? Because I sent Jesus to earth to teach you how to love me and to love others. I thought Jesus came to earth to propitiate God's wrath, die for my sins on the cross, and to save me. Because I am a wretched sinner who does not love God by nature, cannot love God by nature, and does not love my neighbor as myself. And therefore, I am condemned and stand completely guilty before God in my sinfulness. And my only hope and prayer is the same prayer that the tax collector had in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What happens, Rick, if I get the question wrong? What if I didn't learn to love? What if I didn't have enough time? What if I became a Christian yesterday and I got hit by a bus the next day and I didn't have time to love, learn how to love God and to love my neighbor. Uh, and those of you who want to uh, save yourself this way and think you need to uh, save yourself by learning how to love and God and to love your neighbor, how will you know when you've done enough loving? When will the level of your love achieve that point to which God will say to you, okay, good, you've, you've learned enough and I'm going to let you into heaven? Because this is a preaching of the law and the law is conditional. The law is conditional upon your obedience. And by the way, the law does not take into consideration partial obedience. It only takes into consideration full and perfect obedience. It's all about love. Now, we've done a lot of different uh, journeys together at Saddleback Church and other churches uh, in our network. 40 days of purpose and 40 days of community and 40 days of peace and, and, and faith. And we've done a lot of different things. But there has never been a more important subject than what we're going to cover together for the next 40 days. Because life is all about love. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That- That's the law. Here's the good news. And we'll leave on this thought. I could point out more scripture twisting that Rick engages in in this sermon, but I think you got the gist of it. Here's the good news. For those of you who know that you do not love God with all of your heart, that through your actions, your words, and your deeds, the things that you do and that you don't do, both to God and to your neighbor, and that you stand condemned as a sinner, knowing full well the full weight and magnitude of those commands. The law is fulfilled truly perfectly in love, and the problem is is that despite your best efforts to muster up within yourself some kind of love towards God and some kind of love towards your neighbor, you know that it's feeble and weak at best and absolutely just shot through with sin. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man, 100% God, 100% man, came to earth and he perfectly loved God and he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled the law of love. He fulfilled the life of purpose, if you would, perfectly. And on the cross, he took your sins upon himself and he took my sins upon himself And he atoned for them, propitiated God's wrath. 
Your sins are wiped away as far as the east is from the west, and Christ, through faith, clothes you in his perfect righteousness so that God doesn't see you as a sinner, but sees you for the sake of Christ because you are truly hidden in him as a saint. And now, as one who's been redeemed from death, sin, and the devil, you can love because God first loved you. And as feeble as that love is that you might have towards God and towards your neighbor, God, for the sake of Christ, will see it as a good work. You don't have to worry about passing a test or giving the right answer at the end. Trust in Christ, repent of your sins, and believe the good news that Christ has done it all for you. That's what's missing from all of these campaigns, these 40 days campaigns, twisted scripture that focuses in on yourself and gives you the law as the remedy for your problems. It's not the law that's the remedy for your problems. If anything, the law will exacerbate them and make them worse. The law will leave you completely dried up and parched without any ability to move forward, despondent and depressed, because you know you're not living it. Repent and believe the good news. Christ has redeemed even those sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, may the Lord bless you and wash you in his grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that Christ has been crucified for all of your sins and mine. 